Today's episode is sponsored by NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. NerdWallet's trusted financial journalists use fact-based reporting for some much-needed clarity in the finance world, helping you make smarter decisions with your money. The nerds have helped me get smarter about things like managing finances with a partner without causing a breakup. We all know about that in my life and how hard that's been for me and also my listeners. You guys hear them talking about it on the mailbags. It is hard to manage finances with a partner. Putting away money for retirement, since I'm not going to be doing this podcast forever. Sorry, I guess I could, but retirement is huge for me. I am deeply focused on it right now and planning for my tax bills so I don't dread April every year. Taxes are a doozy and it's always changing. How do you know what to do? Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast on your favorite podcast app. Future you will thank you. You got problems that you ought to be concerned with. You don't know how you're supposed to earn it or what to do with it or how to keep it. You're a freak with a dark, shameful secret. But you're not the only one. Get your hidden financial fears with a blast of sun. Now your healing has begun. It's back with money with Gabby Dunn. Hello again. I'm Gabby Dunn and this is Bad With Money. Welcome. We have a returning guest, which I always love when our guests return. But first, let's say what the theme of the episode is. This episode is about giving a damn. Let's define that using everyone's favorite, uh, very uh, important and serious resource, Urban Dictionary, which is to care, even remotely, about a subject, person, or idea. And usually we use this phrase as a negative, like, I don't give a damn. And obviously, it's much easier to not give a damn. Right now, guess what? There's a rent strike going on for a lot of people. People are worried about being able to pay their rent. And small businesses are floundering. And those of us that are independent contractors are having a hard time making money because we're freelance and we also maybe don't qualify for unemployment. So it's very understandable to not give a damn during a pandemic. Uh, Sometimes you just lay in bed and stare at the ceiling and you think, why bother? I do this actually on days not during a pandemic uh, because I have a major depressive disorder. But generally, you pull yourself up, you get out of bed, you brush your teeth and you go, today's the day we're going to give a damn. I personally feel in control when I have all the information. And specifically, I'm very lucky to be able to talk directly to the people that we voted into office. You actually could try it, too. If you look them up, there's usually a phone number or an email or some way to get in touch. I happen to have a uh, personal and professional relationship with Representative Mark Ticano, who uh, has been on the show before. He's a congressman from Riverside, which is in California. So we're going to get into the all-encompassing conversation about giving a damn and what the government is doing for us with Congressman Mark Takano, who is my favorite openly gay Asian congressman. (laughs) So obviously you've been a guest before, but can you tell our listeners uh, who you are and what you do? My name is Mark Takano, and I'm a member of Congress. Mm -hmm. uh, And I represent uh, Riverside County, uh, which is to the east of L.A. And... um, I represent the cities of Riverside, Moreno Valley, uh, Paris, and Harupa Valley uh, in the United States Congress. Uh, for you, how does uh, pushing for progress or helping other people, not just for you, but for anybody, how does that like 
make you gain something yourself? Well, um, I, I think you figure out in this moment where we're solitary mm-hmm. and uh, we have to experience this separation. We struggle to find connection. Right. And we struggle to find purpose. I was thinking about this this morning that hopefully we're all concluding that by making this sacrifice, we're helping ourselves and we're also, by making a sacrifice of isolating, of being mm-hmm. at home, that we're learning what it means to be unselfish. But we're learning also that being unselfish is about our own self-interest mm-hmm. and it's and it's about the togetherness, the interests of, of the togetherness of it. Mm-hmm. And we're literally in a global battle. <laughs> I mean, it's kind of, yeah. uh, you know, we're literally in this global, global battle and that our circle of care has to extend beyond our household, beyond our city, beyond our state, beyond our nation. I have to admire the leadership that I'm seeing about caring about making sure that we're not mm-hmm. leaving out Latin America and Africa, that for there to be systemic healthcare failures in these countries mm-hmm. uh, will have repercussions on us. It will, right. it will boomerang back on us. Mm-hmm. And that I'm hoping that a lot of young people, despite the fact that that this young generation has, I think, some of the greatest obstacles, that they have it a lot harder than people who had far more robust opportunities, that we still have opportunities. Mm-hmm. And that each and every person out there in your listening audience thinks about what their contribution is going to be. Mm-hmm. And I got inspired watching my friend who retired from the American Ballet Theater. He's now retired, been 10 years retired, and he's now tried to eke out a living uh, by teaching ballet to uh, students from throughout Latin America. So he was going to go on camera with six different nations, from students from six different nations. But I just remember just how inspired I was when he took me to go see him teach little six-year-olds. Uh, they're far from perfect turned out dancers, but yeah. uh, I love watching, especially performing artists like dancers, uh, practicing. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're not performing yet, but they're practicing, practicing, practicing. And I kind of think of this moment that we're in as an opportunity for us to be practicing something mm-hmm. uh, that we're thinking, that we're imagining. We're, we're thinking about how we fit in. Uh, and what our contribution is going to be. And and uh, I know that the job that I do as a member of Congress feels like an enormous privilege every day. It doesn't feel like work. It feels like, holy holy cow, I get paid to do this work. Yeah. And I get uplifted uh, by the arts, but mm-hmm. I, I get uplifted by people trying to make do with what they have on hand at home. I, I think this is a, a lot of time for people to imagine you know, you you see mortality and you see people dying and Uh people, not just old, but uh, it's a time for you to take stock and really think, what are you really going to do with your life? So um, collectively and think in a way of like, if you stay inside, I've heard a lot of people be like, staying inside is not for you. It's for everyone, which is like not the way Americans are usually built to think. (laughs) Well, wear a mask, not because it protects you, uh-huh. but because it's maybe protecting others. Mm-hmm. And um, that we we have to 
learn to have that kind of care and consideration for others. So, yeah. So you asked me the question, what does it get? How does being progressive or pushing mm-hmm. for progressivism, what does that get me? I sort of want to look back at my life and, and believe and know and feel that I made choices that weren't piggish, you know, that were, that were about more than just me. So what have you guys been doing in Congress in terms of helping people who are facing economic impact? You know, starting with three or four weeks ago, uh, we passed legislation that would, you know, make testing free. You know, if you had a COVID-19 test, uh, that, that you should get billed for it. Um, and then we moved on from there uh, with the first CARES Act, where we enhanced unemployment benefits in, in a couple of ways. We said that if um, you normally got unemployment and were qualified for it and you were laid off from your job, you could get an additional $600 per week. The idea was there to, was to bring that up to the, bring the level of compensation up. And we also made it possible for people who may be gig workers. Uh, who drive for Uber or Lyft, uh, who are independent contractors, and people who aren't quote-unquote employees uh, in the normal way, that they could also qualify for this unemployment benefit. They could still go to their state unemployment office, compensation office, and show uh, their earnings in the previous year. Uh, and they could qualify for both unemployment compensation and the additional $600 a week bonus. So, because um, we anticipated a large number of people having to be laid off from the work and companies having to cut back, because obviously people staying home uh, in isolation during the time of, uh, of the coronavirus pandemic, we'd anticipated a huge uptick in unemployment. We are also providing everyone with a $1,200 rebate or nearly everyone. There's some mm-hmm. people who got left out of that, namely our immigrants that use the um, ITIN numbers instead of social security. Mm-hmm. I mean, you, you could be uh, you know, a dreamer uh, who's working as a teacher or working whatever, but you don't have a social security number, you have an ITIN number. Those folks are right. left out of the $1,200 uh, rebate program. So uh, there's other ways, you know, we also said that uh, if uh, you are paying a mortgage, and a mortgage borrower, and you borrowed through a federally backed program like Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac or the Veterans Home Loan uh, Program or FHA, that you can apply for a forbearance, an interest fee forbearance on your loan. Uh, But you have to talk to your lender, your financial services company, uh, and you can request uh, initially a six months forbearance and then uh, you can go back and ask for another forbearance. That's up. That's up to a year. Um, education department has actually put. You know, you can also you can ask for a similar sort of um, forbearance on your loan, your student loan. It has to be a federally backed student loan. Private student loans aren't included. And also, there's some protections for renters, but uh, not as uh, robust as for mortgage holders. But if you're a renter and you like a like participate in a federal program or your landlord does, uh, they can't evict you. Mm -hmm. Uh, So these are some of the things the federal government has done. There's a few more things I'm not remembering. I'll probably remember them as we talk (laughs) some more. Uh, But this is not 
enough in my mind. I was about uh, to say, are you butting up against uh, people that are like, you know, you feel they need to be doing more and you're sort of butting up against that? Well, here's the problem. The coronavirus pandemic is exposing weaknesses oh, yeah. uh, in our economic system. What's got exposed is the vast income inequality and the vast generational differences. So younger people who, frankly, have not had the access to uh, the kind of jobs that previous generations had in terms of the level of pay. Yeah. Um, and the stability uh, and longevity of those jobs. Yes. Well, they they tend to have be more independent contractors. They tend to be uh, people who don't have full benefits. So we see a lot of families, and it's not just younger people, but it's people across the board who cannot withstand the shock of a $500 unexpected expense. Mm-hmm. So uh, they're living paycheck to paycheck, no savings. That's a huge chunk of our population that has no savings. And so there was no cushion going into this pandemic situation. Right. So hence, we have to do the $1,200 rebate. Which and is in my not mind, enough. it's not enough. It's not yeah. enough. Well, it, it's something if you have unemployment and then the $600 bonus right. a week, four times $600 is another $2,400 on top of the unemployment, the $1,200 on top of that. You know, that, that could be something. And if you have kids, $500 each for each kid you have. But as a one-time benefit for a pandemic that's lasting more than one month or two months, not enough. What, what I was hearing, what I heard was that, you know, when people started getting these $1,200 checks in their bank accounts, most people were spending it on food. Right. That's very rational. I mean, you don't spend it on rent. You don't spend it on your mortgage. You got to pay for food. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I know that the anxiety is building up in people over what happens three months from now or six months from now. Uh, how am I going to be able to pay the rent? Uh, how am I going to pay the back rent that I owe? Because I'm not excused from paying the back rent. Yeah. So, so that's also what Congress needs to think about. Um, some people through the Paycheck Protection Program, which the PPP, Small businesses are supposed to keep people on the payroll in order to benefit from a, a loan that turns into a grant if they keep people employed. So some people, hopefully, are, some part of our economy, they're going to continue to be able to collect paychecks uh, even if they aren't able to work and are retained by their employers mm-hmm. uh, as they're supposed to be. But it's going to be a massive job making sure that everybody kind of not only obeys the rules, but obeys the intent of this legislation. Uh, have you been in touch with a lot of people <clears throat> in Riverside? Like how are like people getting in touch with you and have you heard a lot of stories from various constituents? I have, I have. They they write to me by email. Uh, mm-hmm. They call my office. And even though there's no one at the office to answer the call in person, uh, the recording gets forwarded to my staff that are working uh, from home. Uh, they're teleworking. We send out, uh, we've sent out a survey Mm-hmm. asking about the PPP program to our small business people. And uh, we got an unusual number of responses. What did they and say? So, well, they were saying that um, that they applied and went to their banks. And sometimes the, the banks were helpful. Other times the banks were not. Uh, sometimes uh, they made the application, but the money ran out. And uh, Oh, my God. 
Yeah. And of course, it was infuriating for my constituents to find out that national restaurant chains, because of a loophole in the law, because the way the law was written. So this program was intended for people with 500 or less employees. Right. So that was the idea of the of this program, small business relief. So so these big chains have like a local franchise or, or right. a local restaurant. And that local restaurant, if it had less than 500 employees, that counted. And so they could apply. So, you know, uh, initially Shake Shack, you know, got millions of dollars. I have to give Shake Shack some credit because they they returned it. Gave the they gave the money back, right? Mm-hmm. So all these bigger companies helped accelerate the the sucking dry of this account. And so we that's why I had to fly back to Washington oh. was to was to approve more money. Yeah. Uh, for this program that ran out of money. Uh, How does it run out of like there's so much money in the f- budget. It just goes to the wrong places, I feel like. Well, there was a huge amount of money for this program that was initially approved. Yeah. Um, but you think about all the small businesses out there. Mm-hmm. Uh, you think about just one company being able to take $10, $20 million. Right. And you multiply that times thousands of companies. Mm-hmm. That's how you run out of money. We need to take a short break and we'll be right back. And we're back. Are you hearing from it like individual constituents too about what they, you know, rent striking or stuff like that? I hear stuff about immigrants who have mixed households. Mm -hmm. So they might have children that are citizens and who should qualify for the $500 per child grant. Mm -hmm. But because the parents are undocumented, they have no way of easily applying for this money. I hear about veterans who have undocumented spouses, and because I filed that joint tax return, and one of them wasn't um, was undocumented, even though one was a, a mm-hmm. veteran that you know served in our military, uh, that they can't get the automatic uh, twelve hundred dollars in their account. Mm-hmm. And I'm I'm haven't talked to my staff about whether there's even a bigger problem with that, but that's happening. Mm-hmm. Um, I've had a few sessions with kids uh, and their teachers. We've we've done like you know Zoom kind of ask your congressman questions about government kind of um, mm-hmm. sessions. And so kids are asking me, when are we going to get back to school? Yeah. Uh, when can things go back to normal? Am, am I going to have a graduation? That was really sad. Uh, uh, I know. I was thinking graduation. about if I was in high school, I would be devastated. Mm-hmm. And I'm hearing about. I also hear about people concerned about uh, the ways in which this virus seems to be hitting the African-American community the hardest. We also know that the um, there's an environmental factor too, mm-hmm. that people of color and low-income people live in the areas that have uh, poorer environments, that, they're, that there's an environmental justice component to this, that they're located in areas that they're more exposed to certain pollutants. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a Harvard study that just came out that looked at long-term exposure to air pollution uh, people who live in Riverside and San Bernardino counties, you know, we in the San Gabriel Valley, we also, you know, have this lifelong exposure to increased or more severe air pollution. It's it's like an underlying condition. Right. COVID nineteen COVID nineteen affects people with these under underlying conditions to a greater extent. Um, 
lower income people tend to have jobs that are essential, mm-hmm. like working in supermarkets, like uh, you know, working in the fields, uh, harvesting food, mm-hmm. uh, like driving the trucks, like the jobs that don't have PPE protections. You're likely to be a person of color and also a woman mm-hmm. if you work in a nursing home. Right. And as we know, nursing homes have been the petri dishes for mm-hmm. COVID-19. So uh, the types of occupations in a nursing home are people like licensed vocational nurses, uh, CNAs, certified nursing assistants, janitors who yes. uh, work in and, hospitals. And, work in hospitals and also these nursing homes. Mm -hmm. And these folks were afterthoughts when it came to PPE or personal protective equipment, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And this is part of what has caused uh, some of the nursing homes to be on the verge of collapse. Yeah. You're right that those people were considered afterthoughts and that it's showing up in the demographic of the people who are dying or being affected by COVID. And we were talking uh, on a previous episode about, you know, that a lot of the media is sort of like, well, just like tip your Postmate a lot and wipe everything down. And I was like, I think that the average listener to this show is the Postmate. <laughs> like, it's, it's not the, the, it is the Postmate. It's not the person who's like, <laughs> needs to tip the Postmate. It's the person who is the Postmate. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, for those people, like, how how are you seeing ways that people are helping each other? They feel like it's become very individualistically like the government's doing some, but then there's obviously a lot of focus on like helping your neighbors or like, you know, trying to figure out what the best ways to be useful are. Well, I'm inspired by, um, you know, community groups that have sprung up. I'm inspired by the Sikh temple in my district. Uh, oh, what are they doing? Pro- they're providing meals to people who are food insecure. And it's interesting because the Sikh community, they were often the targets of discrimination because they wear uh, a kind of head, a turban. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I just know where they're coming from is that they were like, we want to show that we're part of this community and that we're part of the, the network of compassion. Mm-hmm. Um, I read through the Essential Workers Bill of Rights. Can you tell me yeah. about that and who's working on that and what that is and who that's for? Well, the Essential Worker Bill of Rights are the pe- you know the people that we're talking about, the people that work in grocery stores. They're afterthoughts. They're essential workers, but they've not been thought of as like, well, we need to protect their health. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've seen meatpacking operations close down, pork processing and beef processing plants where the infection rates were just so high uh, that they had to close down. So health and safety protections are the number one thing on a list, number one item on a list. Um, This list um, was compiled by uh, Senator Warren and and Congressman Ro Khanna. Uh, It's not a, it's not actually legislation yet. It's, it's actually sort of a statement of principles that were submitted to the leadership in both the House and the Senate. And I have signed on to a letter along with many, many other progressive members of Congress stating to our leadership that we want you to fight for these agenda items uh, in the next uh, CARES 2 package. Um, we also think that people ought to get bonus pay. Another, another way to talk about that is hazardous duty pay. Right. Right. You are, you are doing work that's similar to what armed forces would be doing. 
putting mm-hmm. themselves in danger, putting your life on the line, literally. I mean, uh, I just read a tragic story about an emergency nurse, that emergency doctor actually committed suicide. She was just so rattled by. I think that will um, be another uh, death effect from this. I think about that a lot. Yeah. So we need premium pay for, I think it's more clear if we say it's hazard pay. Right. We it's not also, just physical. It's not just physical. It's mental health, uh, emotional wages. But yeah. yeah. If you got sick, you didn't get sick leave. So right. you could lose yeah. your job because you got sick. You, right. you stayed right. home. Right. Even if you had a doctor's note, there was nothing to protect you. And we made a big advance by getting two weeks of sick leave that's paid. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we incentivize it by giving a tax break to the employers. But of course, it's very porous. It's it's very it's it's not a hundred percent, right? And there are exceptions here and there, and uh, so we so that's why we say we need a true mm-hmm. uh, paid sick leave, and we also need family and medical leave, and we can't allow the administration or any administration to you know, arbitrarily exclude or make exceptions to all of this. We need to make sure that every employer does this. We also need protections for whistleblowers. For whistleblowers, you know, really? For whistleblowers, yeah, because people were getting disciplined for speaking up and you know saying, "Oh, I don't feel safe going into this situation without PPE." And employers would call them in and read out their version of things. That's what we mean by whistleblowers. Whistleblowers able to to like call out an unsafe situation, mm-hmm. uh, especially in a COVID nineteen context. Let's pause for one last break and then we'll be right back. And we're back. I mean, do you feel that we were like adequate? We were not adequately prepared for this. I mean, we could have been, but, but we're not. (laughs) Well, let's say that other countries had universal Mm -hmm. sort of protections for Mm -hmm. their citizenry. And, I think we have to think about what it means to have adequate governing, adequate government. Mm -hmm. And yes, we have a market economy where we're supposed to be competitive, where we spur each other on to, like, we try to outdo each other in a market, but we also got to make sure that nobody becomes too dominant and too bossy and too coercive on other people. And the prize, um, the prize for doing quote unquote better is not you get to live and other people get to die. That's not how that works. Well, <laughs> <laughs> that's not, it's not like, oh my God, we should open the economy and we'll trade 10 old people lives for it. Like it's, well, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, that is scary thinking. Like, uh, let's expose, let's expend how many old people are expendable. Or any, I mean, it's not even no? just old people. People, young people are dying as well. People don't want to believe that, but it's true. Yeah, I think there's a well, lot of American individualism built into capitalism, where we're like, "Well, the other people will die, but I, I'm don't worry. I'm, you know, I'm better, and I'm pulling myself up by my bootstraps or whatever." Um, and you know, you're talking about that the Sikh temple. I think there are a lot of individuals who are picking up the slack of the government. You know, you see like temples or um, organizations or individual people uh, 
you know, down to my neighbor yesterday who left a chocolate cake on my doorstep, like a beautiful angel. Uh, oh, like, really? Wow. Oh, it was wonderful. But just like, you know, people are, are picking up the slack where like, ideally the government would be. Yeah. Well, obviously in the time of a, of a pandemic that is affecting a whole swath of population, obviously there's a role for government at all different levels mm-hmm. to coordinate, to ensure people are properly nourished and are properly resourced. And this, a kind of situation like this totally upends the conservative ideologues uh, that think that we should be in a state of nature. Mm -hmm. Uh, And, you know, the weak, the weak parish, (laughs) you know, this is going to shake out all the weak people. Um, What we're dealing with is trying to deal with the fact that a weak system has been exposed mm-hmm. and a weak economic system. And this, this kind of inequality, the, the pervasiveness of, of this inequality is of income inequality, of healthcare inequality, mm-hmm. and environmental justice. All of this contributes to making our solidarity even harder, harder to, hard, harder to like create solidarity. But we're doing it. We're doing it in spite of all of that. If if I have like a, a final question, it's like, I wonder if we give all of these things like medical leave and, and um, more social safety nets, maybe people will realize that we need them and it will be something that does not roll back after the coronavirus is there's a vaccine or it's more contained. Um, do you think that like it would open people's eyes to the need for this kind of stuff? And maybe it would be something that we're able to keep like a more progressive uh, political situation? Um, possibly. Possibly it's my hope. I'm hearing, I'm actually hearing that there's been a quiet backing away of trying to kill off Obamacare. Oh. I mean, prior to oh. this pandemic, <laughs> both, remember the first two years of Donald Trump and the Republican Congress, mm-hmm. how they wanted to repeal uh, the Affordable Care Act? Yeah. Um, and Suddenly, the Affordable Care Act is becoming a pretty important tool. Interesting. Uh, you know, expanding, <laughs> like, it doesn't make sense to kill off the subsidies to buy private health insurance. Right. Suddenly, you know, trying to get money to flow into Medicaid across the country to take care of poor people. Mm. Uh, and in many states, they can be presumed eligible. They don't have to wait for an enrollment period to open up. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's looking awfully silly. For them to have tried to kill it off mm. by various strategies, mm. right? Mm. Uh, to have all these uninsured people, um, I, I think I think we're going to have to fight really hard, and we should have to be fighting for this at all because it should be kind of no a no brainer mm-hmm. that if you get COVID nineteen, you shouldn't have to worry about how much it's going to cost you to get treated. Correct. It's that whole thing, like, well, what's the alternative? We just, you know, you die, or you know, obviously, it's in our collective interest to see that you get treated and to see that we arrest the spread of the virus. So mm-hmm. by definition, it's made us recognize a collective interest mm-hmm. instead of just self-interest, individual self-interest. A pandemic is by definition uh, a reckoning with collective interest. Mm-hmm. And collective starts to sound like socialism and communism. But we've always had a need to have a recognition of the collective interest and to find mm-hmm. the right balance. 
Thank you so much for coming on again and talking about this. I think it helps people to hear from directly from members of Congress. So it's not just faceless, you know, helplessness. So I do uh, always appreciate that. Oh, thank you for the opportunity. Okay. So I loved that interview. I really feel this idea of picking up the slack and taking care of each other and the ways in which the community comes together to fill in the poorest little gaps uh, where the government uh, has not provided enough money or has not provided enough resources. But honestly, I always feel relieved to speak to someone in our government directly. I like having different Congress people or government officials on the show whenever I can because I feel like they are often faceless entities and we feel frustrated and helpless and we have no control over what they do and we don't know how to get them to do what we need. And so I think it's good during this time when I personally feel like I have no control over anything to speak with someone who flies across the country to vote for things that could help all of us. So if you can get in touch with your personal representatives, your mayor, your city council person, anyone during this time, the more information that you are armed with and the more ability you have to tweet and write in and call these people, I think the less out of control you will feel. At least that's been my experience. Thank you for listening and thank you for any way you're helping someone else get through this difficult time. And honestly, if you wake up every day, stare at the ceiling and then still get up, good for you. If you're not helping someone else, then please just think about what you could maybe do to make someone else's day a little bit easier, even if it's just texting your mom a really cute meme. If you haven't already, make sure you're subscribed to our show on Stitcher or wherever you find your podcasts. The show is produced by Tamika Weatherspoon. Our audio engineer is Brendan Burns, and our audio is mixed by Andy Christens. Our executive producers are Chris Bannon and Josephine Martirana. Original music is composed by Zach Sherwin, Mike Kaplan, and Jack Dolgen. Our theme song is performed by Sam Barbera. Bad With Money is a production of Stitcher. I'm Gabby Dunn, and hopefully I will see you next week. Going to say that at the end of every episode until probably 2021. <laughs>